This is the RBR TVBR In Focus podcast. Here's your host, radio and television business report editor-in-chief, Adam R. Jacobson. Hello and welcome to the podcast, which is presented by .fm. Streaming, social, podcast, or broadcast, get a .fm domain name by heading over to get.fm today. And today we are traveling to the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. for an address from Federal Communications Commission Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel. As RBR and TVBR first reported midday Tuesday, Rosenworcel will release a proposal of a draft notice of proposed rulemaking that will begin the process of reestablishing the FCC's oversight over broadband and restoring, quote, uniform nationwide net neutrality rules. The reclassification of broadband under Title II, which opponents have been bracing for for over a nearly three-year period in which Democrats lacked a third vote necessary to make the rulemaking come alive, would bring back a Wheeler Commission decision that was erased under the FCC's most recent leadership of Ajit Pai. To hear... How the FCC will move forward on net neutrality, we go to the National Press Club and offer excerpts of Jessica Rosenworcel's address. We need broadband to reach 100% of us, and we need it to be fast, open, and fair. Yet even as our society reconfigured itself to do so much online, our institutions haven't always kept up. Today, there is no expert agency ensuring that the internet is fast, open, and fair. Since the birth of the modern internet, the FCC has played that role. And if you think about it, it makes sense. These are principles that have deep origins in communications law and history. After all, back in the era when communications meant telephony, each and every call went through and the phone company could not cut you off from your call or decide to edit the content of your conversation. Now fast forward to the present. Communications means a whole lot more than just phone calls. It means access to the internet because broadband is the most important infrastructure of our time. But as a result of the previous FCC's decision to abdicate authority, the agency charged with overseeing communications has limited ability to oversee these indispensable networks and make sure that for every consumer, their access is fast, open, and fair. I think that's not right. Because for everyone everywhere to enjoy the full benefits of the internet age, internet access should be more than just accessible and affordable. The internet needs to be open. And that's what I wanna talk about today. The Internet's open design is revolutionary. It is right there at its foundation. It means creating without permission, building community beyond geography, organized and when you want it, and cultivating ideas not just around the corner, but across the globe. I believe it is essential that we sustain this foundation of openness, and that's why, since I have served at the FCC, I have always supported net neutrality. Now, at this point, I think it's worth acknowledging that net neutrality is one of the most widely discussed issues in telecommunications policy. But the debate around it often yields more heat than light. 
So I'm going to keep my comments on the history here short, but focus on the basics. So roll back before the pandemic, before the smartphone era, before the Washington football team called itself the Commanders. Let's start in 2005. That was when the FCC adopted its first open internet policy statement, which was built on policies that had long been in communications law and history. The agency made clear that when it came to net neutrality, consumers should expect that their broadband providers would not block, throttle, or engage in paid prioritization of lawful internet traffic. In other words, your broadband provider had no business cutting off access to websites, slowing down internet services, and censoring online speech. Your broadband provider was not allowed to play favorites like steering you fast to some online service that had given them a payout and assigning you to a bumpy road for those who had not offered up the same pay. As a consumer, you can go where you want and do what you want online without your broadband provider getting in the way or making choices for you. Now, after 10 years of policymaking and what I think were, when I count, three rounds of litigation, in 2015, the FCC finally, finally adopted net neutrality protections that were upheld by the courts. The FCC had produced open internet policies that passed judicial muster. We had clear rules of the road, and those rules were popular. 80% of Americans support open internet and net neutrality policies. So this looked like it was going to be the end of the net neutrality saga, but not so. Because in 2017, the last administration took it up again and did something different. It announced that it would break with over a decade of consistent FCC policy and repeal the FCC's open internet rules, the ones that were held up by the court. Now, the public backlash was overwhelming. Maybe you remember it. People lit up our phone lines, clogged our email inboxes, and jammed our online comment system to express their disapproval. And despite this overwhelming opposition from the public, the FCC repealed net neutrality. In fact, the FCC's actions were so extreme, the United States Senate voted to restore the agency's open internet protections. Now, I believe this repeal of net neutrality put the FCC on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of the law, and the wrong side of the American public. It was not good then, and it makes even less sense now. It determined that this infrastructure, which the pandemic proved is so essential for modern life, needs no oversight, and I think that's just wrong. So today we begin a process to make it right. This afternoon, I'm sharing with my colleagues a rulemaking that proposes to reinstate net neutrality. This is a first step. When we vote on this rulemaking, we will invite public comment about how restoring net neutrality rules can help ensure internet access is fast, open, and fair. We will need to develop an updated record to identify the best way to restore these policies and have a uniform national open internet standard. Now, I recognize that we're kicking off this rulemaking, and that will be the headline today. But while I have your attention, there's something else I want to share to you about this process and this policy today. The repeal of net neutrality rules was problematic not only 
because it wiped away enforceable bright line policies to prevent blocking, throttling, and paid prioritization. It was problematic because what the agency did reversed the decision to oversee broadband as an internet access telecommunication service under Title II of the Communications Act. Well, it had a lot of downstream consequences, and I think we should talk about them. Now, that last sentence is complicated, and I realize if you are not from Washington, it's a little hard to unpack. So let me do it for you. Title II is the part of the law that gives the FCC clear authority to serve as a watchdog over the communications marketplace and look out for the public interest. Title II took on special importance in the net neutrality debate because the courts have ruled that the FCC has clear authority to enforce open internet policies if broadband internet is classified as a Title II service. And providing a strong foundation for net neutrality rules is a good reason to support classifying broadband internet as a Title II service. But again, there are downstream consequences that flow from the agency retreating from Title II, and they need attention. So let me explain. Back to the pandemic. It made clear that broadband is essential infrastructure for modern life. Access to the internet is now access to everything. And common sense tells us that the nation's leading communications watchdog should have the muscle it needs to protect consumers and make sure their internet access is fast, open, and fair. Common sense also tells us a thing or two about the state of competition in the broadband marketplace. I'm a big believer in the power of competitive markets to drive innovation, investment, and consumer benefits. But I also recognize the high cost of entry makes competition a challenge in many places. That is why almost half of us have high-speed service with 100 megabits per second download speeds, and only half of us can get it from more than a single provider. In fact, only one-fifth of the country has more than two choices at this speed. So if your broadband provider mucks up your traffic, messes around with your ability to go where you want and do what you want online, you can't just pick up and take your business to another provider. That provider may be the only game in town. You need a referee on the field looking out for the public interest and ensuring that access is fast, open, and fair. On one issue after issue, classifying broadband as a Title II service would help the FCC serve the public interest more efficiently and effectively. So let's start with public safety. In its remand of the FCC's decision to roll back net neutrality, the court found the agency's disregard of its duty to analyze the impact of public safety renders the decision arbitrary and capricious. I agree. The record before the court demonstrated that when firefighters in Santa Clara, California were responding to wildfires, they discovered that the wireless connectivity on their command vehicle was being throttled. As a result of Title II uh, repeal, the FCC didn't have any authority to intervene and fix it. Title II would also bolster our authority to require internet service providers to address internet outages. Now, this issue really hit home for me when I visited Detroit last year. I heard about Hope Village, a neighborhood of nearly 7,000 people that suffered through a 45-day internet outage during the pandemic with little recourse. 
remember, when the FCC backed away from overseeing broadband, it meant that the only mandatory outage reporting system we could have in place is focused on long-distance voice outages. Let me submit to you, in a modern economy and during the pandemic, collecting only data about when the voice system goes down just doesn't cut it. Look at national security. The FCC has taken a series of bipartisan actions to reduce our dependence on insecure communications equipment and to keep potentially hostile actors from connecting to our networks. This is good, but it is not enough to keep our adversaries at bay. Today, when we take away authorization to provide service in the United States from state-affiliated companies who may wish to do us harm, we take away what is known as Section 214 authority. But remember, thanks to the retreat from Title II in the last administration, that authority does not cover broadband. This is a national security loophole that needs to be addressed. Then look at cybersecurity. The FCC is actively involved in federal interagency cybersecurity planning, coordination, and response activities. You want the expert agency with all sorts of knowledge about network technology to be sitting at that table. But without reclassification, the FCC has limited authority to incorporate updated cybersecurity standards into its network policies. Then look at network resilience and reliability. We want to make sure that our communications networks hold up during emergency situations like natural disasters. Title I could help us better monitor the degradation of service in times of emergency with the kind of required outage reporting I mentioned earlier. Then look at privacy. The law requires telecommunications providers to protect the confidentiality of the proprietary information of their customers. That means these providers cannot sell your location data, among other sensitive information. These privacy protections currently extend to phone service customers, but not to broadband subscribers because Title II does not cover the latter. Does that really make sense? Do we want our broadband providers selling off where we go and what we do online? Scraping our service for a payday from new artificial intelligence models? Doing any of this without our permission? Then look at broadband deployment. As a nation, we are committed post-pandemic to building broadband for all. So keep in mind that when you construct these facilities, Utility poles are really important. Title II gives cable and phone companies rights to attach their facilities to utility poles when they deploy service. But when the FCC rolled back its open internet rules, it eliminated the pole attachment rights of broadband-only providers. And if you really want build-out and you really want competition, this is not good. It needs to be fixed. Then look at robotexts. Along with robocalls, they are a big source of consumer complaints at the FCC. And one thing we have learned about the bad actors behind this junk is that they are continuously evolving their technologies to reach us with their scams and fraud. Title II authority would give us the maximum flexibility to counter this fraud and evolve our approaches as technology changes. To be clear, the FCC is actively engaged in all of these issues. But at times it can require duct tape and bailing wire to jury rig the justifications to make sure all of our actions are on sound legal footing. 
doesn't always work. And it renders unnecessarily vulnerable some of our most important security objectives. Reclassification of broadband as a Title II service would make the FCC's work more efficient and effective and consumers more confident that their internet access is fast, open, and fair. On top of this, restoring our open internet policies will mean that a uniform legal framework applies to the whole country. Because if you think that nothing much has happened since the FCC retreated from our net neutrality policies and are asking yourself, what's the big deal? Think again, then look harder. Because when the FCC stepped back from having these policies in place, the court said that the states could step in. So when Washington withdrew, California rode in with its own regime. Other states too. They put net neutrality rules in state laws, in executive orders, and in contracting policies. So in effect, we have open internet policies that providers are abiding by right now. They're just coming from Sacramento and places like it. But when you are dealing with the most essential infrastructure in the digital age, we benefit from having a national policy. All of this means that we are choosing between net neutrality and no rules, well, that's a false choice because what we're really discussing are having one national standard or a patchwork of state regulations. Now, having gone through this drill before, I know that a small but vocal chorus of naysayers is surely already raising their objections. They say Title II is heavy-handed. And if we are seeking comment on anything, like applying Title II broadband in its entirety, I would say they have a point. But we're not doing that. We're approaching it with a light touch. Back in 2015, when the FCC last had net neutrality policies upheld by the courts, the FCC chose to forbear from 27 provisions of Title II of the Communications Act and over 700 agency regulations for broadband and broadband providers. We are sticking with that approach. They say this is a stalking horse for rate regulation. Nope, no how, no way. We know competition is the best way to bring down rates for consumers. And approaches like the Affordable Connectivity Program are the best bet for making sure service is affordable for all. They say nothing bad has happened. Again, states stepped into the void creating by the FCC retreating from net neutrality. I think it's time for Washington to step back in with a national policy to make sure internet access is fast, open, and fair. All right, so what happens next? On Thursday, I will release the full text of this rulemaking. It seeks comment and putting back in place policies to prevent your broadband provider from engaging in blocking, throttling, and paid prioritization, along with a general conduct rule that prohibits your broadband provider from unreasonably interfering or unreasonably disadvantaging consumers from going where they want and doing what they want on the internet. Now for consumers, this means internet openness, security, safety, and one nationwide net neutrality standard they can count on. Three weeks from now on October 19th, I'll ask my colleagues to vote. And if we get at least three votes, we will kick off this rulemaking, and I promise you, I will do a lot of listening. We all need to have an open mind and would all benefit from a fresh record on this subject.
Now, as we move forward, I want to make one last plea. I have every expectation that this process will get messy at times. I have, in fact, been to this rodeo before. And I believe peaceful protests are a sign of a healthy democracy. What I worry about is when things get ugly. In the past, when this subject came up, we had death threats against Chairman Pai and his family. That is completely unacceptable. And I'm grateful to the law enforcement that brought the individual behind these threats to justice. We had a fake bomb threat that was called in to disrupt a vote. I know, I was there. We had protesters blocking Chairman Wheeler in his driveway and keeping him from his car. And we saw a dark effort to tear down a pro-net neutrality candidate for the agency. I recognize that those who go to these extremes are not listening to or reading these remarks, but those of you who are, set the tone for the debate. So make some noise, raise a ruckus, but keep it in the lines. Above all, keep speaking up. We are here now because so many people let the agency know that this issue matters. We are here now because the COVID pandemic taught us with painful clarity just how important broadband access is in modern life. In the United States, we have now made a historic commitment to make sure that high-speed internet access reaches all. We have invested in this infrastructure like never before. Now let's make sure it's fast, open, and fair for consumers everywhere. Thank you. And with that, we thank you for listening to this radio and television business report in focus podcast. Jessica Rosenworcel did not make any further comments, nor did she answer any questions at the National Press Club event on the afternoon of September the 26th. This In Focus podcast is presented by .fm. Streaming, social, podcast, or broadcast, get a .fm domain name by heading over to get.fm today. This is Adam R. Jacobson for the Radio and Television Business Report and Radio Inc. We thank you for listening to this In Focus podcast, and we'll see you next time. Take care.